that have risen up and said, I am God. I find it very interesting. John the Baptist steps on the scene in John chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, this is your opportunity just to turn because we're going to spend a lot of time in the book of John today. But uh, John the Baptist comes and there is a great revival that begins to take place. There's baptisms that are happening. There's something different about what John is accomplishing. John chapter 1 and verse 19, and this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed, and he did not deny, but he confessed and he said, I am not the Christ. John made it very clear. He said, John the Baptist said, I'm not the Christ. Later on, he, they, they said, are you Elijah? He said, I am not. They said, are you the prophet? He said, no, again, I'm not the prophet. A little bit later on in verse 23, he says, but I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Later on, they said, well, if you're neither the Christ, if you're neither Elijah, if you're neither the prophet, then who are you? It was, it was John making it very clear. I'm not going to step into the role of assuming that same title that was used in that burning bush. I am that I am. Later on in John's life, in, in John chapter 3 around verse 22 through 26, verse 28 to be exact, he, he repeated it. He said, I am not the Christ. But Jesus shows up and he didn't make those denials. He used very often the phrase, I am. And, and you've heard me say that when, when they looked at him, Jesus, during the Passion Week and all of the, the trials that were going on, and one of the questions was asked, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Are you basically God coming in flesh? And the answer that Jesus gave that's recorded in our English Bible, he simply says, I am. And then immediately after that, they tear their hair out. They rip their clothes. They gnash their teeth. The reason is not because he was saying, I am the Christ. He answered in the same format that God answered Moses in the burning bush. He said, I am that I am. He was making himself equal to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They couldn't handle it. There's four Gospels Recorded in the Bible, there's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those three are what we call synoptic gospels. Those three gospels, for the most part, chronologically uh, record the history of what Jesus did during his time on earth. They, they will record it from different perspectives, much like if, if, if you... Uh, 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 saw something, maybe there was a car accident or maybe there a tornado touches down or something that catches your attention and the news broadcasters come and they say, what did you see? You ever noticed when people interview, everybody sees something totally different but it was the exact same you know, thing? Well, so when you read Matthew's account of the gospel, Matthew is, is relaying the things that caught his attention. Mark is the same way. Luke, the same way. And so they're not uh, in conflict with each other. They're not saying different things. They're just showing you different sides of an incredible timeline. But John's gospel is different. Um, I, I, when I was in, in Bible college at Gateway, one of my favorite classes, it was a hard class. It was a class, it's called a seminar class. 
And, and, and what it is, is it's you read a ton. I'm talking about uh, every day you're reading almost 100 pages. It, it took a lot of, uh, of work. But you had to read. And then you would go to class prepared together to discuss what you read. So it wasn't a lecture. It wasn't, you know, where you have someone telling you. It, it was a small class. I want to say there were six or seven of us in that. But we had to read. We had to read John in the Bible. We had to read commentaries. And then we come together to discuss. John's gospel is different. John's gospel is not so much recording a chronological timeline as John was trying to prove a point throughout the book of John. So let me give you an idea. If you read the book of John, you'll find several times that it uses the term and signs. So when John decided to record a miracle, he wasn't just recording a miracle to tell you that God did a miracle that Jesus performed the impossible. But instead, every miracle that John lifts from the historical record that he saw, that he was a part of, every miracle that John uses, he uses to prove a point of the divinity of God. So, so he, he, he misses, or not misses, he purposely leaves out other miracles that the other three Gospels record. But John said, no, I want to use this miracle to show you the, the deity of God Almighty, robed in flesh, manifested on this earth. But there's something else that is unique to the Gospel of John. It's unique in the fact that it doesn't show up in any of the other Gospels. And that is, in the book of John, there are seven statements of Jesus where he says, I am. And I want to go through those as much as I can and, and, and I may get bogged down in one or two and, and we may come back and finish it another time. But I, I want to show you uh, seven I am statements. Now, if you're one of those note takers, and we've got a lot of them in this church, and I love watching people take notes. I love when you have your Bibles and you're writing in it. These are those moments in your Bible or in your notes where it would do good for you to number those I am statements because there's going to be times in which people are going to try to figure out how in the world can you say that Jesus is God Almighty and this is one of those places you can go and say well watch what Jesus said these are those red letter conversations and so if you have your Bible John chapter 6 we'll start there I will not be able to read it all but I do want to highlight pieces of it. So in John chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000. And so it says that, that, that he feeds the 5,000 and he's sitting there and, and uh, you know, the, how are we going to buy bread? And disciples said, man, even if we had 200 denarii, which means the day's wages of 200. So, so almost... If you could take your salary, if you will, the average salary, and, 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 and take two-thirds of your yearly salary, if they had all of that, they still couldn't buy enough food to feed that crowd. And what are we going to do? And then, of course, Andrew comes and says, hey, I found a little boy. He, he's got a, a little, it's not a lot. He's got five loaves of barley. He's got two fish. And I don't know what you're going to do, but maybe Jesus, at least you won't go hungry. Jesus takes it, he breaks it, he feeds it. And when they're done, they pick up 12 baskets full of fragments. And, 
And, and of course, you can only imagine how that would have got the attention of all those that were there. Wouldn't you like to see that? I'd like to see that, you know. We'll, we'll use the Lord's food, Chick-fil-A. You know, that's, that's blessed. That's holy food. And, you know, God shows up, and, 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 and here you are. We're all hungry, and it's, it's North American Youth Congress, and we're all starving because we can't all fit in the restaurants. And Jesus walks up, and he's got, you know, just a couple Chick-fil-A sandwiches and a couple bags of fries, and, and he just starts passing it out, and it keeps multiplying. And when you're done, you got 12 lunches left over. It would get your attention. In fact, for some of you foodies, that would get your attention more than opening blinded eyes and opening deaf ears, just to put it mildly. It got their attention. Later on, he, 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 he you know, he, the, the, the crowd is coming around him. They, 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 they're just oppressing him and pressing on him. And so he, he, he says, you know, we're going to get on a boat. And then the storm comes and Jesus walks on the water and it's, I be not afraid. And now the next day, that crowd is on the other side of the sea and they find that Jesus, so they, they find him and they, they're, they're like bloodhounds. Wherever Jesus goes, they tend to figure out it and they're, they're coming and they're there and Jesus began to say, and, and here's what they, they ask in verse 25. And they found him on the other side of the sea and they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus knows and he says, really all you're doing is seeking signs. And and. He, he, he begins to talk and he begins to say and they say to them sir give us this bread now look at verse 35 here's the first I am statement Jesus said I am the bread of life and whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst and they said give us this bread it's very interesting when Jesus called himself the living bread there, there is a, instantly, the mind of all of those Jews around him went to a time in the wilderness where manna fell. In fact, some of them were, 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 were even saying, why don't you give us that manna again? And, in, and, and I'm, I'm blown away when I look at, at how they respond. Jesus has just broken bread and done the miraculous, 12 basketfuls remaining, took one little lunch, fed thousands, and, and yet they still look at him. They're still wanting a sign. And they say to him, well, why don't you give us manna? Let manna fall from heaven. But Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He wasn't claiming to be like the manna that sustained the children of Israel. He was telling them, I'm even better than that manna. It's kind of like when he said, and it's a different gospel, so it's not part of the seven I am statements of, uh, of John, but it's like when he, when he said, you know, I'm the living water you drink and never thirst again. I'm not a water that quenches your everyday thirst and then later on you're going to come back. But if you drink of this living water, you'll never thirst again. That's the bread he claimed to be. The manna that fell in the Old Testament merely sustained them on a day-to-day -day basis. They had to eat it every day. They had to partake of it every day. But he says, I am life. That's not just a sustaining life, but it's an everlasting life. And this life that I give, this bread that I offer, is not relegated to the wilderness and the Jews, but I'm offering this bread to the entire world. I'm the living bread, the bread of life. That manna that God gave them in the Old Testament 
was a gift. It was merely, if you will, it was nothing for God to speak and have manna fall from heaven. Some of, some of the, the, the commentary that I'm going to use today comes from, from uh, the, the Bible exposition commentary, and I love that commentary. I use it quite often in my study. And it, it was interesting. Uh, the, the manna... As far as we can tell, it came down. It looked like little wafers, and it fell. It was white. It was round. It was wafer-like, and some said it tasted like like honey. And and so in my mind, this is just Brandon's, it, it tasted like Popeye's biscuits with butter and honey on it. That's what I tend to think of it when I uh, start thinking about manna. And um, I now understand why some people got way too much, and it spoiled on them because if Popeye's biscuits are going to fall from heaven, I want all I can get. But, but the, the literal word manna means what is it? They, they had no way to describe uh, even how this miraculous bread fell. But, but it is, that, that didn't cost God anything. He could snap his fingers and, and, and biscuits could fall from heaven. He could snap his fingers and quail could come into the camp. And by the time they got done, if I understand the Bible correctly, it was quail three feet high piled up all over the camp. That didn't cost God anything. But this living bread that you and I can partake of cost him everything. He was saying this isn't the same as that manna. This is different. The Jews would have had to eat that manna every day in order to survive. But that sinner who trusts, that sinner who accepts, that sinner who repents and is baptized in Jesus' name and filled with the Holy Ghost, that one time is given life eternal. He said, I'm that living bread. That manna the commentator made this analogy he said that manna was given to a rebellious people it was the gracious gift of God you know why God gave manna because they were complaining you know why God let manna fall in the wilderness because they were hollering and screaming and crying and wishing they could go back to the world and wishing they could go back to Egypt and wishing they could go back into bondage and the God of grace looked at a rebellious people and said I'll let manna fall from the sky so you don't die in the wilderness but God looks at a rebellious people like you and I and he says I'll let that bread of life come down the, the commentator made this statement and I, I guess it's that word picture that I'd have never thought about that if they didn't pick it up the manna they'd have walked all over it so in the wilderness if they got all they needed or, or if for whatever reason they said well I don't want it they were literally walking on their miracle and today it's the same if they failed to pick it up they walked on it and, and I, I'm, I'm struck there's three words I used them earlier there's three words I'm struck grace, faith and works it is the grace of God that gives us access to the salvation it's the grace of God that drops it in our lap. It's the grace of God that says, here you go. Here's that living bread. It's the grace of God that lets us have that life and that more abundantly. But to say that, that all it takes is God's grace is to say that when manna fell from heaven, all they had to do was thank God the manna fell. Because the manna falling was because of God's grace. Are you with me? But if they didn't reach down 
Well, well, let me back up. So God's grace lets man fall. That's grace. He provides their salvation. In a physical sense, eat it and live. Don't eat it, die of starvation. And God's grace literally lays it in their lap. Now, faith steps in. Faith says, hmm, this weird white stuff on the ground that Moses gave us the word of God that said God's going to provide sustenance for us. Faith says that weird stuff on the ground that I don't understand how it got there and I'm not exactly sure how it's all going to fall, fall, you know, you know come, come to me and I don't even know how it's going to taste. Faith says if God's grace gave it to me, I want to receive it. But faith in itself doesn't work. Because they could have looked and said, man, God's grace gave us manna. He's a good God. He's an awesome God. Man, can you believe it? Great is his mercies every morning. I opened up the tent and there was manna there. Thank you, God, for providing manna. And you'd starve to death if all you had was faith. Grace gives you access. Faith believes that that access has been given. But it is the work of you and I to stoop down and pick up what God gave us. It is the work of you and I to say by grace he has made a way of salvation. By faith I know he'll forgive me. But it's when I bow my head and repent of my sin that I put action to the faith that is because of the grace of God. The Lord is never far from any sinner. The Lord is not far from any person. All that sinner has to do is humble himself and accept and pick up what God places in their life. He said, I am the bread of life. And then John chapter 8. Turn with me to John chapter 8. Again, you know me, those of you that have been around long enough, I can't just take one verse. It would be very easy. That's where I started. I'm gonna, let me give you insight to how Pastor Buford prepares a sermon, or at least prepared this sermon. Are you ready? So, Brother Miller, I know that there are seven I am statements in John. I learned that in Bible college. and I, So, I went to my commentary. I typed in I am. I pulled those in, and I put them all on a sheet of paper. You know, just seven verses. But I couldn't leave it at that. So then I pick up the Bible and I go back to John chapter 6 where John chapter 6 says I'm the bread of life and I have to figure out what all was in there. And this is where John, this is what I told you, John always, he, he's not going to just randomly say something. The reason he chose to tell you Jesus said I'm the bread of life is because in that same time period and conversation he fed 5,000. You with me? So now in the book of John chapter 8, you have the second one, which is, I am the light of the world. But in order for you to get there, you have to start at the beginning of John chapter 8. It's the story of Jesus. He's at the Mount of Olives. He comes to the temple. The people come to him. He sits down and he teaches them. And in the middle of his teaching at the temple, that's key, where he is determines why he says what he says. And so Jesus says, all right, I'm, I'm teaching. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm at the temple. And they bring to him a woman, they say, 
caught in the act of adultery. They throw her at the feet of Jesus. They place her in his midst. Hey, teacher, we've, we've found this woman's caught in the act of adultery. Moses, in the law, commands us that we should stone such women. Jesus, I know he just wanted to thump them right there because that's not what the law said. The law said you stone the man and the woman. You can't pick and choose what the law says. You can't pick and choose what the Bible says. You can't twist it around and make it fit what your uh, 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 story and how your story is heading. And they say, well, what do you say? They wanted to test him. Because if Jesus would have said, absolutely, the law says stoner, stoner, they would have said, well, what about the man? And if, if Jesus doesn't stone her, well, then he's not obeying the law of Moses. And so now we have him, no matter which way he turns, and Jesus is watching, and Jesus is listening, and he bends down, and he begins to ride in the dust. And then he says, well, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone. Bends down, writes some more. They hear it one by one, from the oldest to the youngest. They drop their stones, and they walk away. Woman, where are your accusers? I don't know. Well, then neither do I accuse you. I forgive you. Go and sin no more. In verse 12. See, this is where you can't take part to the Bible and try to isolate them because as soon as he looks that woman in the face and he says, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more, his next statement is, I am the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. It, it, it fits so perfectly when you begin to look at it. It fits so incredible. Some would say that, that Jesus was comparing himself to the rising sun. And there are verses. You could read Psalms 84 and verse 11. You could read Malachi chapter 4 and verse 2 that they use the descriptive elements of the sun to describe the majesty and radiance of God. If you will, that in our universe there's only one sun. It's the center of our life. It's the source of our life. It's, read John chapter 1, verse 4. It's the source of light. And, and, and maybe he was saying, I'm, I'm that. You look at the sun. You realize that I'm comparing it. This is me. But what he was talking about is light reveals the wickedness of man. Some of you maybe not necessarily old enough to go all the way back to, to, to remembering World War II, but you're close enough to that to remember the blackouts that they would do. The reason they would black out during the times of war is because if you've ever been in an airplane and you're flying, it's amazing. You can be, and, and, and but Justin, how high do airplanes fly? 35,000 feet, somebody said. You're going to be 35,000 feet in the air. And you can see one house lit up down on the ground. One complex lit up. And so in times of war, those airplanes, even before there was, you know, drones and all of that, all they had to do was find one point of light. And they'd go bomb that one point of light and get. It's amazing how light shines and light reveals. But this statement of the Lord, I am, was also very relevant to where he was and what time it was. The Feast of Tabernacles had just finished. 
And at night there at the feast, part of the whole procession at night, they would light a huge candelabra and it would remind the people, it would remind them of the pillar of fire that would light up the night there in the wilderness. And, and so it was that that there, it, it was, John uses three, and I, I'm kind of getting off hand, but John uses three wilderness images to describe Jesus. He says he's the man, and we talked about that. The one we're not going to talk about is the water from the rock. And then he uses this pillar of fire, if you will. And so it is that that light comes. And that light, now now watch what, what the Pharisees said. So he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said, you're bearing witness about yourself and your testimony is not true. You know, light has to bear witness of itself. If you turn light on, it shows itself to be lit. Don't preach about it here. I don't know when. I'm working on it. But It was cool at, at North American Youth Congress, and I'll show videos and pictures when I get ready to preach your sermon. But they were singing a song, and it was... I don't know the, the whole name of the song, but one of the f- lines in it is, I'm, I, I'm living in the light, living in the light now, something like that. And they were singing it. And of course, it's young people, so what did they do? They grabbed their phone and they lit it up like flashlights. It was kind of cool because in that arena of 37,000 people, and of course, the lights are such that for the most of the arena, it's dark, and all of your lights are focused on the stage. But there was enough light lit by cell phones that it lit up the entire arena. You can't help when light is turned on for it to witness about itself, I'm lighted, I'm litted, I'm light. There's light. And, and I don't mean this to be ignorant, but the only people who cannot see the light are blind. And so when the Pharisees told Jesus, I don't get it, I don't see it, you cannot be the light of the world. They were by their own definition saying, I'm spiritually blind. He said, I'm the light of the world. And that light of the world shines. And the light of the world shines in every dark corner. It shines in every crevice. And when Jesus stepped foot on this earth, he was telling them, I'm here. And their deeds began to come manifest. And and the wickedness began to be shown. And the path began to be made clear. He said, I am the light of the world. As I look at the time, I'm going to do one more and then we'll have a part two because this next one is going to take a minute. Because like the light, this next one showed the wickedness of what was going on. And if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of John chapter 9. I want to show you just the, the arrogance, stupidity, and, and, and utter disregard for the things of God that the Pharisees and the rulers of, of Israel had. 
Jesus passes by, and he sees a man blind from birth, and his disciples ask, because they, they they're not very smart all the time, they ask, why is this man blind? Who sinned? Did his mom and dad sin, or did he sin? They were trying to equate physical ailments with cursed by God, and God doesn't operate like that. And so Jesus said, well, it wasn't that this man sinned or his parents, but tell you what, maybe he was born blind just so I can perform a miracle. Perhaps that's the reason he was created, so that I can show you the work of God. As long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. And having said these things, he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva. He anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means go be sent. And the man, the blind man, goes and he washes and he comes back seeing. Miracle. A man born blind now sees. He comes back. The neighbors see him. They knew him as a beggar. And they said, isn't this not the man who's been blind all his life? And he sat and begged. And and some said, well, maybe it kind of looks like him. Others said, no, but he looks like him. And finally the man said, I'm him. I was blind. Now I see. So they, they asked him, how did this happen? He said, well, the man Jesus made mud, anointed my eyes, said, go and wash. I did. And they said, well, where is Jesus? I don't know. But look at verse 13. And they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been formerly been blind. It was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. God forbid that God operated, that Jesus did miracles on their church days. God forbid that Jesus move heaven and earth when they're, when they're worshiping God. I mean, it just blows my mind, the irony of what they're doing. The Pharisees asked him, how did you receive his sight? He put mud on my eyes. I washed, I see. And they said... This man, Jesus, he's not of the Sabbath. He's not from God. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. How can a man who's a sinner do these signs? There was division among him. And so they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened his eyes? The blind man said, I don't know much. You must be a prophet. The Jews that did not believe he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of the man. So now they bring the parents in. Is this your son? Now watch Is this your son whom you say were born blind? How then does now he see? And his parents answered, Yes, he is our son. Yes, he was born blind, but we don't know anything else. And here's why. And this is very crucial. And and this is verse 21 of of John 9. And his parents, uh, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor how we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. And here's the key, verse 22. His parents said these things, for they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue, excommunicated, kicked out. We don't want you in church. We don't want you in this. And so the parents, they didn't didn't want to be caught up in this mess and so they said we washed our hands you ask him he can answer he's old enough to answer and so the man answered I mean been blind all his life now he can see he answers and if you keep reading in in Exodus chapter 9 they kicked him out of church they kicked him out of the synagogue excommunicated him scarlet letter can't ever come back you say pastor why is that important 
Because you've got to go to John chapter 10 and verse 7. When Jesus said again to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep, or I am the door of the sheepfold. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, and the sheep do not listen to them. I am the door, and if any man enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find the pasture. I am the door. This whole parable and sermon of Jesus grows out of the events in John chapter 9. It's the excommunication of the beggar. He had spoken to them about light and darkness, but now he changes and he says, I am the door of the sheep. For them in the Jewish mind, a shepherd would have been any leader, any spiritual or political leader. And so Jesus opens his sermon with a familiar illustration to them. It may not make sense to us, but you have to put yourself in that time period. The sheepfolds were places where they were enclosures normally made of rocks. If you've ever driven out in the country, you'll find a lot of times surrounding some farm fields where they have have plowed and, and worked the land and tried to reclaim the land. They pick up all the rocks that seem to grow in the pasture and they, they will make uh, fences out of rocks. Has anybody ever seen, seen what I'm talking about? Make, make whole fences out of rocks, semen them together, stack them up. And those enclosures made of rocks. Maybe it's it's part of a cliff, or a, you know, a, a cliff, and and they kind of box it in. And there will be an opening, a door, and the door would not have a door. The opening would not have a door, for it was the a custom that the shepherd would guard the flock by sitting or even lying across that opening, so that if anything was going to get into the sheepfold, it would have to go through the shepherd. It was not unusual for multiple flocks to be enclosed in one sheepfold. And every morning the shepherds would come because there may be one porter. Maybe they would draw straws, if you will, and and one would stay there. But when the next morning came, the shepherds would come. And those shepherds could call out for their sheep. And the sheep would know their voice. It's the same today if you have ever been around sheep and, and, and someone who truly raises sheep, they still exhibit those same characteristics today. A shepherd could call and just by the voice of the shepherd, the flocks would go to their appropriate places. And so it is, if I could, there's kind of two different ways that, that you could examine the, the eye on the door. There could have been what they would have called the porter. It would not have necessarily been the shepherd, but it would have been the one that guards the sheepfold. And the next day, if that shepherd was coming to get his flock, that shepherd would have to go through the door. And the porter would recognize him. Oh, yes, your flock is here. Come on in. If you didn't belong to those sheep, or if those were not your sheep, that's the proper way, if those sheep were not your sheep, and you wanted sheep, you'd have to climb over the wall and pick one up. That's a thief or a robber, the Bible says. And so it is that you, you, you cannot get the sheep to follow you if you're not their shepherd. They only follow the voice of their shepherd. And so it is that false shepherds cannot lead the sheep away. They can only steal them. So Jesus was talking to these religious leaders. The word parable can be translated as a dark saying and sometimes the parables are very clear and and Jesus would give them the answer when he really want like the prodigal son or or, uh, the the, the seed, you know, the the, the sower and the seed and the different ways the seed is, is is cast about. 
he explained that pretty clearly, but he didn't explain this one. It was dark. They didn't get it. It's not like the other parables recorded. It's because he was reminding them, I remember when you excommunicated that beggar from the synagogue because false shepherds won't care for a man. They just cast him out. A true shepherd would be the one. Read Psalms chapter 23. A true shepherd would bring one in. A true shepherd would care for the sheep, but a false shepherd doesn't care. The book of Amos tells us the law of the shepherd that, that if, if I was a shepherd and, and the sheep didn't belong to me, I was merely the one that was taking care of them. So let's use David as an example. David was taking care of the sheep, but they were not his sheep. They were his father's sheep. If David brought out a hundred sheep, and that night he came in, there was only 99 sheep. The law of the shepherd said, David, where is that other sheep? If David said, I don't know, David would have been responsible and he'd had to pay for the sheep he lost. If a lion or bear would have gotten a hold of that sheep, David would have had to have some kind of proof that, that he lost that sheep. He, the Bible says in the book of Amos, it might be an ear, it might be a, a little piece of a leg or, or, or something. You've got to bring something back that says, I tried. And so it is that shepherds made it very clear, I don't want to lose any sheep. But if they're not really your sheep, you can be like those rulers of the synagogue. Ah, be kicked out. We don't care about you because they were false shepherds. But Jesus said, I am the door. Now, I know that a lot of times here in, in this book of, of John chapter 10, which is where he says he's the, he's the door of the sheepfold, I know sometimes we can use that to talk about the entrance of heaven. And while that could be a secondary understanding of that, its first meaning is not heaven, but it's salvation. It was Jesus who came to the nation of Israel. And he came the way that scriptures promised. And every shepherd is called of God and sent by God. And if he truly speaks the word of God, then the sheep would hear his voice. And Jesus was trying to talk to a broken uh, 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 lineage of Israel who should have been the children of God, who should have recognized the voice of the shepherd. I mean, you got the whole Old Testament. Everything that Jesus did, you can find reference to it in the Old Testament. Born in Bethlehem? Check. Seen of angels? Check. Rides a donkey into Jerusalem? Check. But somewhere they had gotten so far away and, and so many false shepherds had lured them and stolen them that when their shepherd came and spoke, they could not hear and recognize his voice. It's John chapter 1. He came to his own, and his own received him not. And so it is that not only does he keep those out, he also lets those in. And he says, I came to the house of Israel, and they rejected, they didn't hear. And so now I go to the fallen house of the Gentiles, and I'm the door. And I'll let you into the sheepfold. I'll let you into the salvation. I'll let you in. He's the door of the sheepfold. He says, I am the door. And so he follows up the illustration with an application. And here it is. I can let you leave if you want. That's the Jews. That's those that didn't receive it. He said, all right, I'll let you leave and do your own thing. But he said, I'll let you in 
those that won't. And he opened the door to you and I, the Gentiles, and they became part of one flock. They became part, the Jews, the Gentiles. It doesn't matter if you're barbarian. It doesn't matter if you're wise. It doesn't matter if you're a slave. It doesn't matter if you're free. I am the door. John chapter 10, verse 9, he says, I'm the door of salvation. Those who trust me can come in. The shepherd, he's the door. He leads, he delivers them from bondage and he leads them into freedom. And he condemns those that tries to climb over the wall. He condemns those that try to, to uh, steal the thieves and the robbers and he's talking about those present religious leaders in mind. And so he says, when you go through the door, you receive life and you're saved. And you can go in and you can go out. And I don't mean going in and out of salvation. That's not what I mean. But we go into the presence of God. And he sends us out to do the work. And we, through him, we have access. Through him, we have provision. Through him, read Psalms chapter 23. And you realize that not only does he give you salvation, not only does he give you a home, but he gives you life and that more abundantly. The sheep would have no life if they were just kept in the fold all the time. You got to let them out to go to the pasture. You got to let them out to go water. You got to let them out to frolic in the field. But it's the shepherd that releases and brings back. Releases and brings back. And he knows what you need. He knows what pastures you need to eat from. He knows what still waters you need to partake in. He knows when you need to lie down. He knows when it's time to go to a new pasture. I am the door. I don't think time would permit me to hit the next one because it would take a while. Because he follows that one up with I'm the good shepherd. Not only am I the door, but I'm the shepherd. And really, although they're separate here, and I'm going to keep them separate, they're really one and the same because it was the shepherd that laid across the opening and became the door. It's the I am's of Jesus that speak not to the humanity, but to the divinity. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. And I'm the door. Would you stand today? Every one of these you need in your own life. And you can't just have one if you eat only of the bread of life, but you don't take part in the in the uh, uh, the the water and you don't take part in the light and you don't let him be the door, then you're missing out on the fullness of life. So I wonder for just a moment. If you could close your eyes as you begin to look back. I am the bread. I am the light. I am the door. Would you let that be applied to your life right now?